So I have a question. Well, I'm asking for a friend. Does God love transgender people? I'm asking for a friend. Everyone's worried all the time. What do you think we're all so worried about? Why are there so many gods? If our God is the one true God, why doesn't everyone believe that? Why does God only heal some people? I'm just asking for a friend. It's always great to see each and every single one of you. And uh, before we get, go any further, I just wanted to share something that was on my heart. Um, during worship time, I really felt like God wanted to remind someone today that there's nothing you can do to stop him from loving you today. And so many times we come into church and what gets in the way of us receiving God's love is we think about all the things that we haven't done right up to this point, right? And on the weeks where we feel like we did everything right, whether it was, you know, praying enough, reading enough God's word, playing enough worship music instead of the new Drake, right? Whatever it is, we feel like we're worthy of God's love at that point. And so I just want to encourage you today, wherever you find yourself right now in your walk with Jesus, understand this, is that nothing can separate you from his love. Romans 5, 8 is always a great reminder that says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ came and he died for us, meaning he wasn't waiting for you to have it all together before he took the first step. He says, in the middle of your mess, in the middle of what you're facing right now, I will meet you there. And I love you enough to not leave you there, but pull you out of that and show you that there's fullness of joy, show you that there's peace, show you that there's purpose and there's, there's a plan for your life. And so just right there where you're at, just say, God, I'm letting my walls down today. I'm not going to allow my sin stop me. I'm not going to allow my mistakes to stop me, God. I want you to do what you want to do. And, and what a perfect song. I will create or I will make space for you to do whatever you want to, man. Way to go, worship team. So today is our last week of asking for a friend. And I want us to acknowledge how amazing this series has been. Would you guys agree the questions that we've tackled? have definitely started conversations even after service. People come and, and they tell our pastors, you know, I almost didn't come today, but that message was for me. I'm thankful that we're a church that does not run away from difficult topics, but instead of sharing our opinions, we go to what the Word of God says, and that is our foundation for how we live life, because Scripture, scripture shapes our lives. Amen? And so today is our last week, and the way we're going to end it today is through a panel. And so I'm going to go ahead and ask our panelists to go ahead and come up, if y'all can give it up for them. These are the people that if you have any questions about life, they can answer every single question, okay? So make sure you stop them in the lobby. All right, so we're going to take some time and just allow them to tell you who they are. Um, so we'll start with you, Pastor Caleb. Pastor Caleb. 
Yeah, um, my name is Caleb Bagby. I'm a pastor here at NCC and get the privilege of working with our production teams and worship teams and um, organizing these gatherings on Sundays and being a part of all that here. And he does a phenomenal job, you guys. All this that you see here, it's a vision with this amazing team. Hey, y'all. Um, I'm Bree. I serve here on worship as well as the associate student pastor for NYC. Shout out to That's right. Yeah, I'm John Jones. I'm the one that Pastor Aaron occasionally mentions during sermons. <laughs> uh, I uh, got my bachelor's degree at Southwestern University of God University. I got my degree in church ministries, and then I went up to Missouri, uh, where I got my master's of divinity from uh, Assemblies of God Theological Seminary. Amen. John is a secret weapon, guys. He's got so much knowledge. Um, my name is Angela Escamilla. I'm the pastoral admin here at NCC, and I'm also on the worship team. Awesome, awesome. So we've got a great panel, and uh, we're going to tackle some questions that maybe you at some point have thought but are too afraid to ask. Uh, sometimes we're like, man, I've been a Christian for so long, I should already have the answers to these questions. And the reality is that sometimes we don't have the opportunity or we haven't had the conversation or uh, haven't dug deep enough to get the answers to these questions. So the first thing that we're going to start off with is what is heaven? What is heaven? So going into what is heaven, I wanted to share the definition of heaven based on what Google says. So <laughs> what Google says heaven is is a place regarded in various religions as the abode of God and the angels and of the good after death, often traditionally depicted as being above the sky. So a lot of times whenever we're thinking of heaven, we look up or we point up and we think of just good and perfection and we're like, we can eat whatever we want in heaven. Jesus, <laughs> let there be Chick-fil-A in heaven. Right. But a lot of times we don't understand okay, is heaven here on earth and it's just hidden from us? Is heaven a place that like we still know each other? There's a lot about heaven that we don't completely get to comprehend. And digging into the Bible, a lot of times, honestly, starting this, we don't know everything about heaven. There's so much about heaven that we won't know until we get there. And my dad and I have a running joke that whoever gets there first will ask God if dinosaurs were real. <laughs> or what was up with that? But there is so much that we do know certain things, what some of it may look like, that God will be there. But there's so much that we don't know. And in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Amen. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then in Luke 23, 43, it says, and he said to him, Jesus, talking to someone, saying, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And I think that an important thing about heaven that we need to know is that it is paradise, that it is a place that there will be no mourning, but that we will get to exist with God Amen. and be joyful. And that's really the quick what heaven is. It's a place that, yes, after we pass away, we get to live eternity with God. We live an eternal life. Like in John 3, 16, it says we will live an everlasting life alongside God, getting to live life with him and love him forever. And there will be no pain. Amen. 
Yeah, and like as Angela's saying, if we were trying to answer like the question, what is heaven like? Like what it will feel like? What are we going to do? That's almost an impossible question to answer. Um, and even looking at scriptures, there's not, not a lot of context for exactly what it will be like. And we probably won't be able to answer that question until we get there. But we're asking the question, what is heaven? And kind of tagging along as Angela is saying, heaven is the place where God dwells and where his spirit is fully present and where he is fully present. Um, in Matthew chapter 25, is Jesus talking about the final judgment. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he'll separate the people as a shepherd separate sheep from goats and the sheep on his right side the king will say to them go come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for for you from the creation of the world and then those on his left um, don't get the same kind of invitation but what we see is eternity heaven and hell this is a real thing and there's a place to be present with God as we pass on from this earth or as Jesus comes back and he brings believers into this place with him. And then there's another place to be fully separated from God. Right. And so we see heaven, it's where we can be fully present with God um, and where he is fully present. It's this, um, when you see, he mentions the kingdom that is prepared for us from the creation of the world. He's bringing us back to Genesis and back to creation where there was this full unity of heaven and earth where God was walking fully physically present with his people right and then we bring sin into the world and we create the separation between heaven and earth and now they're very different things in how they interact with each other the name jesus comes on the scene and he dies and resurrects from the dead and he brings this now kind of connection now between heaven and earth there's almost an overlap happening where heaven is meeting earth again mm. and now he opens the door for us as believers to take part and participate in the overlap of heaven and earth. And so we get to be present with God, even though we're on the earth now, but we're looking forward to the day where Jesus comes back and he brings this full connectedness and unity between heaven and earth, where we get to be fully present again, like even physically with God, because heaven is like fully now where we are with him. Yeah, amen, amen. Y'all give it up for these answers. That was the first question, and we're already getting started in a good way. All right, so when God's people came out of Egypt, out of slavery, um, God had given them specific laws, right, of how they should live among each other and how they should exist in the land that they were in. And a question that a lot of people have is, how many of those Old Testament laws should we still, you know, abide by, should we still obey? So... That's the question that we're going to move on to, is which laws of the Old Testament should Christians follow? Yeah, that was a big question for the early church, uh, the first century. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the church began, all the Christians were also Jews, and they all kept following the Old Testament laws at that time. Right. Then one day they realized, wait a second, Christ died for the Gentiles as well. Mm. And when Paul started teaching the Gentiles that, hey, you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved, all the traditional Jews said, wait a second, yes, they do. Mm-hmm. And so this became a big issue, and you can read about that story in Acts 15. Uh, but what Paul realized is that we are not saved by the law. We are saved by grace, by faith through grace, uh, by grace right. through faith right. in Jesus Christ. Right. Uh, what he also realized, though, is that the laws of the Old Testament were written for the Jews. 
Now, this word testament, when we talk about the Old Testament, it has a meaning. Uh, it means covenant. The Old Testament is the Old Covenant, the covenant between God and the Jews. Mm. The New Testament is the New Covenant between God and mankind. Now, that doesn't mean we can't learn something from the Old Testament. We absolutely can. Right. Let's, let's take the Ten Commandments, for example. The first four commandments show us how we should relate to the Lord, how we love the Lord, how we honor the Lord. Yeah. The remaining six show us how we should love our neighbor. And this is a key to understanding a story that happened in uh, Matthew 22 where a Pharisee comes up to Jesus and asks him, well, what's the greatest commandment there is? And Jesus says, well, it's to love the Lord. And the second greatest, it's to love your neighbor. Right. You know, these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. And what he meant by that was that if you take everything that you have in the Old Testament, all the laws that were given to the Jews, and all the prophetical statements in the books of the prophets, what they boil down to is these two ideas, to love the Lord and to love your neighbor. Hmm. And so it's no coincidence that we are taught those very same things in the New Testament. That's good. Yeah. Go, John. You see, like John is saying, Jesus is bringing to a point the law in loving God with everything you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and like he said, the Old Testament is still this very important part of our faith, like to still engage with the Old Testament in these books and reading about Israel and God and how this relationship is happening and what we learn about ourselves and learn about God through the scripture. Um, but something that has really challenged me reading into like the law and like what are these certain things we should or shouldn't do is we have to rethink how we approach scripture and how we interact and engage with the Old Testament. Um, you may have been like me growing up. I kind of had this preconception of what the Bible was. I went into it reading it thinking this is a handbook for me and how to live my life. This mm -hmm. is going to tell me the things I need to do or the things I need to not do to live a life that's pleasing to God. But that's not even, it doesn't even give you a full picture of the Bible because the Bible is this compilation of writings from authors over so much time and there's narrative, there's story, there's poetry, there's prophetic literature, there's so much to the Bible and how we engage with it kind of depends on how it's written, and I don't want to come anymore with my preconceptions of the Bible, but yeah. let it speak to me from where it is. And these first few books of the Bible, where we read a lot of these sort of list of things to do or not do, it's a narrative. It's a story that we're reading about the covenant relationship between God and his people, and so we can't take it as this list of end-all rules for Christians forever because it's not what it is. It's a story, and these commands, these terms of the relationship are just an illustration of this relationship that we read about in the narrative. And so it's important that we come to it with a proper perspective. And what we, what we see is like God gives commands to Moses and gives commands to his people mm -hmm. of how to keep the Sabbath and what to do, what feasts you're going to have and how they go and what you owe someone for the harm you committed to them. But he's giving them these specific direction for the culture that they live in and how they can show love and respect and honor and reverence to God and to do the same for their neighbor. And so it still comes to the principles that Jesus has told us to love God with everything you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. But God has given them specific direction for their time, for their culture and way of life and how they can do that. And so as we engage with the scripture, we get to see 
how God challenged them to do these principles of loving God and loving your neighbor. And then we get to think of how can we exhibit that in our life, in our culture, and kind of how our life looks different. Because it's not the same as ancient Israel. Right. Um, but we can still live out these principles that Jesus has commanded us to. That's good. Amen. All right. Next question. What is baptism? So I'm jumping in first on this one. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so as we live life with Jesus, he starts to transform us on the inside. Um, Jesus starts to heal the brokenness in us. He helps us to be more like him. This transformation is happening on the inside of us in our heart, in our spirit, in our mind. And baptism is this outward expression of that transformation happening within us and how Jesus is changing us. Um, it's an important note that baptism, it doesn't save you. It's not like a requirement to get to heaven or like if you don't do it, then God's not pleased with you. But baptism is this celebration of the new life we get to live with God. Right. It's a significant part of our faith still that we get to publicly in front of our family and friends, our church family, to declare my life is new. The old life you saw before, that's washed away. It's yeah. in the past. Yeah. And it's really cool to see like we get to identify with Jesus' death and resurrection through baptism. Yeah. And through this, as we go in the water, we're, we're identifying with this old self being crucified with Christ. And as we come up, we're a new, as a new believer, we get to be risen into a newness of life with Christ. And so we're identifying with Jesus' death and resurrection in this celebration of a new life I get to live. And people get to see that, and it impacts each other. And I'm now committing to helping being a part of moving God's kingdom forward and living life with him. Amen. Great answer. All right. I'm going to go ahead and expand on that a little bit. So baptism first and foremost, wasn't a new concept when Jesus got baptized. Like, it was still a practice that happened with the Jews. Like, it was already in practice. Now, things shifted a little bit when John the Baptist stepped on the scene. You know, he was preparing the people. He was like, you know, you need to repent and get ready for the Messiah, okay? So then, <laughs> so then, you know, Jesus comes or whatever. And I'm gonna read Matthew 3, um, verses 16 through 17 give y'all some, you know, verses y'all can meditate on later. Um, it says, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Okay, so the more I really even meditated on baptism and you know, expanded upon what Caleb was saying about an outward expression for us as believers, you know, to celebrate, you know. I took it back to communion even, you know. We take communion as a church body pretty consistently, you know, and we're acknowledging, you know, the bread as Jesus' physical body, the wine as the blood that was shed for our sins, the new covenant, the new promise, right? And usually, for the most part, we're like, okay, yes, communion. But what I've noticed when speaking to other people and other believers is that sometimes you put a wall up and we'll push it off. We'll push baptism off and we'll be like, oh, it's okay. No, I'm not ready. No. And we make it like this big, scary thing. <laughs> right. And, and the thing about it is when we think about communion again, it symbolizes the Lord's last supper. And it talks about, you know, 
That, that took place during the Passover. So Jesus was giving us instruction then. Let's then fast forward to baptism. He gave us instruction on that. Um, let me, last word. When we go to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, it says, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So Jesus said, get baptized. Y'all need to go baptize some people. And right. so, I mean, he said it. Yeah. And so, so, you know, we talk about communion, like I said before, with the bread and the wine. Baptism acknowledges the Holy Spirit. You know, we don't really acknowledge the Holy Spirit enough. And so when you think of it in that context, that's another way of like a symbolism. And so if you call yourself a believer and you haven't taken the plunge yet, I highly encourage you, highly, highly encourage you to go ahead and sign up for Celebration Sunday, which is next Sunday. <laughs> There's a plug. <laughs> you know, a plug it was coming. <laughs> um, where we are going to practice that and celebrate those that are saying, I'm following Jesus, just like we sung about this morning, and your church fam is going to celebrate with you. Good job, Bree. All right. Uh, next question. So I know a lot of people are like, man, I want to read the Bible. There's so many different translations. If you download the Bible app, you guys know, like, I mean, you could just scroll forever, right? And uh, the question is, is which translation of the Bible is best? Yeah, my uh, Bible translation skills have gone rusty. But back when they were in good working order, uh, doing my own comparison, I came to my own conclusion that the New American Standard was the best translation, it's most accurate. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's the easiest for me to read. Right. Uh, I prefer reading uh, the New King James. I want to do some casual reading. Mm -hmm. Now, there can be dangers, though, when you read whatever translation is the easiest for you to read. Right. Uh, there are a lot of Bibles out there called paraphrase Bibles, which mm -hmm. basically take the English Bible and translate it into English. Yeah. And when they do that, they sometimes add too much emphasis to one idea here. They take away a meaning here or there. And sometimes you lose very important information. Mm. And so you need to be careful, of, as you said, that there's a process of how you should approach studying scripture if you really want to get into seeing what the, the, the Bible says. And you want to elaborate? So... Um, as some of you may know, I go to Hillsong College. I was in Arizona last year, and I actually had a class where we looked at a few different translations, and we had to ask this question, like, which translation is best? And we came to the conclusion that there may not be one translation that is above all else, but one great thing that we have different translations, some translations are better for if you're preaching on a Sunday, or if you're doing a Devo, we were taught that if you're doing a devotional, it's great to take a few different translations. Because like John said, it's easy to pick a prayer, paraphrased version and then kind of miss out on certain things. Right. So if you pick a few different ones, one may be able to say, okay, that's the basis of what they're talking about. That helps me understand what they're saying in this other version that's a little bit more complex. Personally, I like reading in the ESV, 
it makes sense to me. It's not too complex, but it's not like super broken down. And so I like that, but then I also like looking at the King James, I like looking at the ASV, at the Good News Translation. So I think that you really just have to do some research, do some digging, because then at the same time, if you're talking to a little kid, if you're reading your kid the Bible, if you're reading the King James Version or even the ESV sometimes, they won't understand it all. But it's important that you understand it and then you can read a more paraphrased version to them, but explain what it's really meaning. Be able to break it down for them. Then within different contexts, if you're talking to a coworker, sometimes we call it Christianese where it's like, even communion can be a Christianese word, like just different <laughs> things, saying it, talking to a non-believer, they may not understand, they may not know. And so digging into different translations of the Bible, there are some that, yeah, it's better to stay away from, but I think that it's a study you have to do on your own to be able to dig deeper and understand the culture that's behind certain context. You have to understand what they're meaning when they're saying different things because it's very easy to take the Bible out of context and take certain verses. And I think all in all, to be safe, even if you're just wanting to look at, look at one piece or one verse, read that chapter. Read a little bit deeper because otherwise you could see one verse and say, oh, so that's it. Whenever it may be meaning a little bit more or it may be meaning something else that you can't completely see without the whole context. Yeah. But all in all, I'd say take it test different translations, look at different translations, read up on the translation, and make sure there's some that you could just Google and find that weren't done very professionally. And so it's better to look and say, okay, people who knew what they were doing went through this and made this in a safe way. Yeah. And I do want to point out, I know that like the Bible app will sometimes give you the option to do a parallel where you'll have like a, new, a King James version you know, with uh, ESV right side by side. So as you're reading, you're going back and forth. And like John said and Angela said, just make sure we're not missing some of what it's saying there. So um, the next question here, this is a tough one. Are Christians allowed to go to war since it's a sin to take a human life? So um, I'll start it. Um, <laughs> this was a hard question in real life. And... I'm not going to lie. I was like, Lord, why am I the one that has to answer this? I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> um, the simple answer is yes. Okay. Um, when you think about it, you look at the stories in the Bible, even back with the Israelites, you know, they had to go to war to take the promised land. Like you have to think about this. And then even like sometimes throughout scripture, you'll see where again, God's people had to come together and fight to conquer the land or fight against other nations. And a lot of times it was to protect themselves. And even today, like it just dawned on me, King David, that's Jesus's, you know, lineage. How do we find out about King David? He killed Goliath. So, I mean, <laughs> when you really think about it, you're like, well, I mean, that is what happened. Yeah. Um, and so... In terms of, let me gather my thoughts for a second. We're a hot mess. That's what I'm going to say. We're a hot <laughs> mess when sin entered the world. 
war was created. I mean, we're, we're just a hot mess. And so you can read about that um, in Romans 3. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But also in Romans 13, verses 1 through 9, it talks about the authority and following authority. And so it says, we are to respect authority in those put in government positions. And I know it's hard for us sometimes to respect those that are put in certain positions. But again, we're not God. We don't see the bigger picture at play. Yeah. Um, so think of that. Another thing to think about is even the book of Revelations talks about some not so cute things, okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so Revelations 19, verses 11 through 21, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God, the armies of heaven. Dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From this mouth came a sharp sword to strike down all the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at, this, at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Mm. Simply put, I will say, have a relationship with God. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to, like, present what's going on in your life um, and let him speak to you. And that's all that you really can do. Um, yeah. Take it away, John. <laughs> okay, so the question is, you know, are Christians allowed to go to war since it's a sin to, to kill another person? Right. Well, the prohibition against killing another person is Exodus 20.13. It's the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Mm -hmm. Period clear, killing another person is a sin. Yeah. Until you read the next chapter, and you read that the punishment for killing a person is that the, part, the killer is put to death. But does that mean that Israel is forced to sin? Do they have to choose between breaking the sixth commandment or breaking this other law? Mm. And as Bree mentioned, you know, the Lord had Israel go out to war. Does that mean they're breaking the sixth commandment when they're killing people? Or do they violate the will of the Lord and make peace with these people? They're committing atrocities against their own children. Mm. We need to go back and look at this verse 2013. The most accurate translation is do not murder. Now, I know a lot of people think any killing of another person is murder. And I'm great that I'm happy if you feel that way because murder is killing another person is a terrible thing. It's right. a very serious thing. Yeah. But murder has a definition that it's a killing of another person outside the scope of the law. Capital punishment, for example, is within the law. So that is not a sin when an executioner kills somebody. Hmm. Likewise, when you're told to go out to war because the king says so, you're following the law, you're following the king. And so you're not committing a sin there. And as we read in Romans 13, you know, we're to submit to our governing authorities. So if you're drafted and you're sent out to war, you're supposed to go. Mm. Now, we have this other issue at hand, though. Uh, the love thy neighbor. It's mm. not exactly loving thy neighbor when you kill the enemy. Yeah. And we're also taught to love our enemies. Right. But then again, 
It's not a very loving thing to allow the enemy come and kill our, our family, our neighbor, the people down the street. And so, you know, that's going to end up being have to be a choice between you and the Lord. Should Christians go to war if they're called by the government? Yes. Whether or not you pull the trigger, that's going to be, have to be a decision between you and God. Mm. Woo! Man. Everybody take a breath. I forget that I'm the one leading the panel, and I'm like, you know, I got to go back to my questions here. Okay. All right. Uh, last question here is, how can God know everything and forgive my sin? So um, I'll start with that one. And simply put, you know, we're not bigger than God. Our sin is not bigger than God. Um, mm. So, <laughs> I mean... That's the simple version of it. Um, an example of what I think about, too, is even when Jesus was crucified, he still was like, forgive them. It says, Luke 23, 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Again, he's being crucified. People just, like, slandering him, hitting him, whipping him, torturing him. But, yeah, he's still like, forgive them, you know? Mm. And so when we go further into Luke 23, 39 through 43, it talks about the two criminals that are next to him on the cross. And it says, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assured you today, you will be with me in paradise. Like, he was just hanging there and the Lord was like, I got you. <laughs> you know? And so, <laughs> um, and I also think about like the Lord is like our earthly parents. You know what I mean? So when you mess up and we mess up a lot especially growing up, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, not everybody's like this, but hopefully, your parents aren't like, remember that time you did da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da? No, they're still showing their love, giving you unconditional love. Yeah. And so you think about that when you're thinking about the Lord. Like, he's our father. It's the same way. He's not, like, dangling something over your head, like, ha-ha-ha. That's good, Bree. There's no forgiveness, ha-ha-ha. Um, <laughs> and then... Just to give you some more scriptures to like meditate on, I'm not gonna read it. You can look up Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 18. And then 1 John 1, 9, it says, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna pose this question to you. When we place doubt in God forgiving our sins, where then does our hope lie? I'd say, first of all, like this question said, God knows everything. We have to be aware that God does know everything. And I think a key word in this is forget. Because God doesn't forget your sin. He doesn't just, it doesn't slip his mind like how we humans forget. But he chooses to make it not matter. If we keep bringing it up to God, God is like, He's not like, oh, I, I don't remember that ever happening. Um, <laughs> no. He's like, no, I remember that. It holds no weight. 
go. That's good. I, I don't hold that against you. Yeah. And so he forgives us. He chooses to forgive us, just like Bree was saying. And in Ephesians 2, 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Mm. So we don't make God forget it. We don't make God forgive us. And we don't say, oh, just because God knows everything, he's always going to be holding that against me. God is giving this to you as a gift. Yeah. He's presenting this to you saying, I he won't make us forgive ourselves either. Mm. So we can hold on to our sin, but he's already forgiven us for that. Yeah. And a lot of times we think, oh, he hasn't because he knows it all. But he's already forgiven us. Sometimes it's more of a us problem where we won't forgive ourselves. Right. And we won't accept that gift from him. Yeah. Then in Isaiah 43, 25, it says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So then we find verses like this and we're like, oh, but he says he won't remember it. So therefore he must forget it. But then at the same time, he's all knowing how does that work? And I think that, like I said before, we, God's mind doesn't work like our mind works. He doesn't just slip up and yesterday I forgot my socks. And so I was like, oh, snap. He doesn't forget stuff like that. But he remembers it all. He chooses to blot it out. He takes a Sharpie to it, marks it. It doesn't matter anymore that we ever messed up that we did that a lot of times it becomes part of our testimony and that's strong and so he's aware of all of our mistakes he's aware of everything we've done mm -hmm. but whenever we choose to come to him and we choose to repent and we ask him to forgive us he puts it past him like we work on whenever we forgive each other like Bree was saying, comparing it to your relationship with your parents. Whenever your parents say they forgive you, you have to trust that they're not going to keep bringing that up. But they're saying, no, it's okay. It doesn't slip their mind. They probably still remember the time you like painted the carpet. <laughs> but they say, no, it's, it's okay now. You messed up. We're learning. We're moving forward. And so we just have to remember that it's such a gift and we need to not take that for granted and not think that God just doesn't remember. And so that's why it's so easy for him to forgive us. But he chooses that. Yeah. It's not just easy and simple. Forgiveness can be hard, but God is the best at forgiveness. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And I just want to point something out. As you can see, we're not always going to have a panel in our house that can answer the questions that we have. For that reason, as followers of Jesus, it is important for us to engage with Scripture on a daily basis, guys. Because I can't tell you how many times I hear some weird thinking, some weird beliefs, and people fall for it because they don't read the Word of God. Right. One thing that I've learned, and I heard this the other day, it's, books over chapters, chapter over verses. So it's not just reading one verse and building our whole life around it. Let me read the chapter where that verse lies. 
and then go even further and read the book so that I understand the context, who God was speaking to, why he was saying what he was saying, and how does that apply to my life. So again, book over chapters, chapters over verses. And so I want to just give it up for our panel. Can we give it up for them this morning? Thank you guys so much for being a part of this today. We've got some great people here at NCC, don't we? Amen. Well, um, we're going to close our service today, and, you know, having all this knowledge and, and having answers to some of these questions are so important, but the most important thing that we could ever do in our own personal life is to start a relationship with God through Jesus. And so if today you're saying, hey, I hear about this loving God, we heard about forgiveness, we heard about it. You know, just all these amazing things that God offers and brings, but I know I don't have a relationship with him. I want to read what the book of Romans chapter 10 uh, says, because I think so many times we can get this out of context as well and not understand how are we saved. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that word Lord means that I'm giving him full control of my life. He has a say in everything. And he's the one that guides every single area of my life. And if I believe with my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, then that's how I'm saved. It's not our good works because we could never do enough good works to earn our right standing with God. His standard is so high, and because it's so high, we need Jesus. We need his sacrifice to receive that. And so this morning, if you're saying, you know what, I know that in this moment I don't have a relationship with God, we want to give you that opportunity. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you want to make that decision uh, with us today, let's all pray this together. Say, Jesus, I give you my heart. I make you my Lord. I believe that you defeated death. And I give you my life today. Help me to live for you. And help me to be obedient to you every single day. I thank you. Amen. Amen. Can we give it up for those that are making the decision this morning?